probably turn on my mic. We're starting a new series that uh, is going to continue for the last couple weeks here, or the next couple weeks in March, and then the first two weeks in April, uh, just prior to Easter. And this is a special time of year, especially for the Christian, because we're looking at a, the, the foundation of our faith. The reason for our hope is found at this critical juncture in history, when Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Christian tradition suggests that the centurion who led the crucifixion of Long, was uh, named Longinus, and that, that he became a Christian following the crucifixion of Christ, and he, he was uh, um, an uh, evangelist in some, some ways and eventually was a martyr for his faith. Now, a lot of what's written about Longinus is simply false just couldn't have, have happened. And it's filled with philosophies and theologies that's found from the middle of church, Middle Ages church. And, and so we know that's not really accurate. And whether his name was Longinus or not, we really don't know. But um, as we approach some of the sayings of Jesus, the first one that happens when Jesus is on the cross is spoken to God about some soldiers. And so it's appropriate that we would consider the crucifixion through the the lens or the experience of a Roman soldier. Jesus' interactions with soldiers were not really that great. He began as a a really small child with uh, the, the soldiers coming to kill him in Bethlehem. Of course, they didn't find him, and so they killed every child under the age of two. And, and you and I, looking at that, we have to ask the question, how could anybody ever think of killing children? And, and the Jews probably had a significant response of complete uh, frustration and irritation with the, the uh, Roman government because of what was going on. Again and again, they're feeling persecuted and put under the foot of the Roman government, and they were not happy. But Jesus did not interact with Roman soldiers based on a long-time grudge because they wanted to kill him. Jesus didn't have that kind of an attitude. And, and so that it, it, it brings us to the, uh, the cross experience, and we have to, to look at what's happening in Jesus' heart as he's responding to these soldiers who are again pursuing his death. Let's pray before we open God's word. Father in heaven, as we explore the story of Jesus' crucifixion, I pray that you would make these words come home to our hearts, that they wouldn't be just words to us, that that we would be changed as we see Jesus on the cross. Uh, Jesus, you promised, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. And so this morning... We pray that you would fulfill that promise and that you would draw us to yourself as we see your sacrifice and we see your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Israel was at the end of a 490-year period of probation, a time that God had given them um, from 457 when they were released from Babylon and, and their captivity there, and they went back to Jerusalem. And they were not good people between those times. I know we read about Ezra and Nehemiah, but, but keep reading in the Minor Prophets and the, the Pathfinder Bible Experience kids will tell you that it was not a pretty picture. They, according to Jesus, they stoned the prophets, they beat the messengers of God, 
And he even told the story of the, the, the guy who leased out his vineyard to, uh, to, to tenants, and he went to collect what was due him for the lease, and they, they beat some of them, and they, they um, tortured others, and then he's like, I'm going to send my own son, and, and they'll surely respect my own son. And so he sends his own son, and what do they do? They kill him. And of course, this prophecy is exactly what is coming true in the Israel experience. The priests have been loaned as under shepherds the responsibility of taking care of God's people, and they have, they have murdered God's messengers, stoned them at the steps of the temple. And now Jesus is there, and they're, they're, they're not doing anything better. Now, how, how would this relate to the Roman government the, the people are re- rebelling against God, but they're doing it in this self-righteous way. They're wanting their government to topple the Roman government. And so they've got this agenda, and there's all these zealots, people who today we wouldn't think of as good people trying to, to right wrongs. These aren't the, the people that were throwing the tea over the ships in the American Revolution, protesting the taxation without representation. These were not noble people. These were thieves and murderers with a religious purpose. You know what we'd call them today? We'd call them terrorists. These are like the guys who flew two jets into the the Twin Towers for a religious reason. That's why we call them zealots. Zealots, maybe today we call them terrorists. Same idea. If you were the Roman government, what would you do? Probably the same thing the United States government did when we had terrorists come and attack us. We went and we occupied their country. And we had soldiers all throughout their streets. And and we have an agenda to protect the United States. Rome had the same agenda, and they sent soldiers into Judea and Jerusalem, and they occupied the Jews. And the Jews weren't happy. It even caused them to be more of a problem to Rome in some situations. Hmm... Just a few days before this crucifixion, Jesus stood on the mountain near Jerusalem and he cried this deep, heartfelt prayer of longing. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus, he does not see Israel's government as the apple of his eye. No, his eye is focused on the people. He's not interested in, in making sure that there's a, uh, an Israelite government. He's interested in making sure that their hearts are surrendered so they can be ready for the kingdom of God that he's bringing. He's got a totally different agenda. And so he, when he's looking at the Roman soldiers, he's not seeing the oppressors. He's seeing people that he loves. And that he would really long for Israel to go and reach with his love and pity. Let's think about this soldier's experience just a little bit. If if you were a Roman soldier, you would be tasked with fighting for the honor of your nation. Making sure that your nation could could be uh, prosperous and and, uh, not overthrown. Um, maybe, Maybe you were there for money. Maybe you were there for prestige. Maybe you were there for career advancement. But every Roman soldier was a professional soldier. They signed up to be a soldier in the Roman army. They were volunteers. 
Now, the United States has found itself in many significant wars throughout the years. One of them was in Vietnam. Uh, my dad didn't end up in Vietnam because his trigger finger was taken off by uh, a furniture factory. And so he got to, to skip that one. But I know many people were in, in, uh, in Vietnam, and the experiences that they had were terrible. I, I don't know much about it, but from what I understand, you might see a young person, a little kid, and they could throw a, a grenade at you and, and, and kill you or your troops. When you see a child murdering people and you have to see them through the lens of an enemy of the state, that changes things about how you relate to the country that you're in. When we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, soldiers might see an adolescent um, with a machine gun. They might see, uh, be driving along in what would be otherwise considered a non-militarized area, and, and suddenly one of their, their um, carriers is blown up by an IED that's triggered by some woman in a nearby uh, cottage that's cooking her dinner. When you see that kind of thing, your mind is changed. The way that you relate to things is different. So you might imagine that those soldiers who were going to Bethlehem to murder Jesus, they were there on what they might have thought was a noble purpose, however bad their actions ended up being. Does that change maybe how you think about the Roman soldier? There's something, there's more nuance here than just mean guys that are about bashing little kids. They have, a, they have a responsibility to their government. Now, Jesus, he sees this bigger picture than most of the Jews see because he's not holding a grudge. He's got a purpose and a plan, and, uh, and so he sees the Roman soldiers with a little bit larger perspective than the Jews have. Most Jews hated their occupiers. And so when Jesus says this idea in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be in Matthew a little bit, so you might want to turn there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, he says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it how long? Two miles. He says, do, do something extra for these people because he has an interest in reaching the hearts of these soldiers. He wants them for his kingdom, just like he wants the Jews. His thinking was completely different than the mindset of the Jews. Now, I, I can imagine the, the culture of a Roman barracks in Jerusalem being somewhat like the culture of maybe our, our army barracks in other countries that, that we're uh, dealing with terrorism in with the United States. Um, there, there's lots of different kinds of people. There's uh, people with different religious backgrounds, people with different cultural backgrounds that are coming together uh, with, with a purpose to defend the country, to defend uh, democracy or whatever. Roman, the Roman soldiers had, uh, they were divided into what they call legions. There were some 330,000 or so Roman soldiers at the time of Christ. And, and so you, you can't just run an army from that large of a group. You have to divide it down into smaller groups. The smallest group was a contubernium. I think I said that right. Um, it's a, a group of eight guys, eight soldiers with two servants that would prepare the food and do some other things. And the contubernium didn't really have a leader, um, except that one of them would be nominated to kind of head things up. Um, the legions also had uh, groups of, um, they were called, the, the word is escaping my mind right now. Um, they're a, well, there's a sentry, 
and that's a centurion is over a century. A century was a group of 80 soldiers with 20 servants. And then the centuries would be organized into, into to other groups of about six or so, five or six centuries. And that would be headed up by the most senior centurion. And when you look at these, these different uh, men in these centuries, you'll find some of them had a cobbler background before they signed up for 16 to 20 years in the army. Others might have had some uh, background in, in um, woodworking. And, and so the cobblers put to work making shoes for the soldiers when they weren't fighting. And the, the, the guy who has a, a building background is put to work building for the army. And if you didn't have any background and, and, and didn't know much of anything before you came to the army, guess what you'd be doing? You'd be building roads, <laughs> the Roman roads, building or repairing roads. And so they, they put everybody to work. Now, a Roman soldier would be from a pagan origin. They've got all these different gods of the Romans that, that they'd worship. You have um, Jupiter and Apollo, Cupid, Mars, and, and they probably had some kind of talisman, something hanging on them, some kind of a, um, uh, something pinned to them to remind them of the God that they were serving that would hopefully protect them. And who knows, maybe they had something from their home as well, their parents, uh, a loved one back at home, and, and maybe it was a carving, maybe it was um, a, a shard of, of clay that, that had some writing on it. I don't know exactly what it might have been, but, but they probably had a whole life beyond the barracks that they lived in and beyond the group of soldiers that they were with. There's a, a story in Matthew chapter 8, if you just go a few chapters farther in Matthew, you'll find a story of a centurion. And this centurion, we don't know if he was a, just a, a lowly centurion that had been there for 16 or 20 years and been given charge of a, um, of a group of 100 people, or if he was one that led that, that whole group of, uh, of maybe six to 800. Um, and there's, there's no telling where he was in rank, but we know he was high enough up that he was paid well enough to have his own home. He wasn't just in the army barracks. And so in, in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion of Capernaum has a paralyzed servant. And, uh, and maybe this servant had an accident that paralyzed him. Maybe he had polio or botulism, something that would kill him, certainly, but cause uh, paralysis of some kind in the meantime. Either way, the centurion must have heard about Jesus' miracles because he comes to Jesus and he tells him his problem. My, my servant has uh, the palsy. And before he is able to ask a request, Jesus jumps in and says, I'll come and heal him. And, and the centurion was not expecting that because in verse 8, the centurion replies, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed for I too am a, a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus must have had this huge smile plastered across his face because uh, Matthew tells us, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This centurion's faith shows us that, that the, the nuance and complexity to the soldier's life is, is much bigger than the flat characters that we're, we typically paint when we're looking at the soldiers on the, at the cross. We see soldiers that are filled with anger and can have only one emotion, right? Death, <laughs> killing, destruction. But that's just not the case. These were complex people with complex lives. And, and in this case, a man of faith. 
Our focus today is the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the moment when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So with this background of the Romans in Jerusalem, I'd like to look at the story of the crucifixion as though you were a soldier assigned to Jesus' crucifixion. Soldiers entered the scene a little bit later in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. He's taken from Gethsemane, not by Roman soldiers, but by temple guards. And, and these temple guards also took him to, to the court of uh, Pilate and Herod. So when we finally see actual soldiers in the mix, it's in Matthew 27, verse 26, when Jesus had seen both Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate and Pilate washes his hands about the decision of Jesus' life, he releases Barabbas, the true zealot, the terrorist, and he, he says uh, to his soldiers, take Jesus, scourge him, and, and crucify him. This is the first interaction Jesus has with Roman soldiers during this trial and, pers- and, 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 uh, and, and crucifixion, and this is not a pretty scene. Imagine if you were one of these soldiers in Pilate's legion. You're, you're not aware of everything that's going on. You're there, but the local politics and the nuance of things, you don't know everything. And so you've heard of Jesus, but you maybe have heard that he's healed somebody or that he's taught this or that. And it's interesting, but it's local stuff. And honestly, all you can probably think is that he's just one of those zealots and I'm going to have to deal with him at some point. And then you get the, the orders that Jesus is coming and that you're going to take him to crucifixion. And so your job is you're going to whip him until he's bloodied and, and, and weak from the blood, loss of blood so that he can't fight too much when you put him on the cross. And then you're going to put a, um, the, the beam for the cross on him and have him walk through Jerusalem so everybody can see him and be warned that this is what happens to zealots. And then you're going to put him on a cross on, on the side of the road so that anybody coming in and anybody going out of Jerusalem can see the example of what happens to those who defy the Roman Empire. And then you'll stay with them because crucifixion takes a while. Depending on how much blood was lost at the, the whipping, it might be hours, it might be days before the person dies. And so your responsibility is going to last for a little while when Pilate brings Jesus down to your responsibility. So Jesus gets there, and um, you, you uh, do the, the thing you're supposed to do. You whip him until he's weak. And then you were told by Pilate's guards that, that Jesus had claimed to be a king. And so you uh, put a, a, a dirty old um, a purple robe on him as though he's royalty. And then you, you get some thorns from a briar nearby, and you pound it on his head. And, and then you say... With all the other soldiers, you laugh and you jeer and you say, Hail, King of the Jews. You're not mocking God, at least not in your mind. You're mocking a zealot who claims to be doing something important for God. He's he's different, though. Jesus does not respond like the other people that you've crucified. Jesus takes it with humble pity so you put the cross beam on his back, you march him through Jerusalem, and along with two others that, that are going with him, two zealots, two murderers, and Jesus is, is uh, under a lot more strain over that, 
last couple days than these other two guys have been who've been sitting in prison. And so Jesus collapses under the burden of the emotions and the physical strain that he's been under. And so one of, your, uh, one of the other guys in your contubernium who's been responsible for this crucifixion gets somebody from the crowd, a, a foreigner, somebody who they, they are pretty sure won't uh, cause a riot. And so they get this guy to, to carry the cross for Jesus. And then you get to the top of the hill and you lay him down on the cross the other soldiers are wrestling with the other two convicts, um, and, and they, they have to wrap cords around their arms so they can keep them still enough to hammer the spikes into their, their wrists. But Jesus doesn't resist. Jesus is calm and docile. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't scream obscenities at you. He doesn't cry out for the, the God of heaven to um, destroy you and strike you down. He doesn't call out against the Roman Empire and, and talk about the Israelite nation. Instead, he says something that no one could have anticipated and that you will never forget. And you can find this in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The verse goes on to say, the soldiers gambled for the clothes that uh, he was wearing by throwing dice. You have pity on Jesus. You, you give him, uh, before he's, he's, he's uh, uh, too much time has gone by, you give him a little bit of wine with uh, some, some poison mixed in to help dull the pain. Because you see, this is a man that's different than the other guys. And so you give him something, but he doesn't, he doesn't take it. He refuses it. And you think that's strange because who wouldn't want the pain to be dulled? But you can't dwell too much on this because you've got a job to do. As grisly as it is, this is an important work that you're doing for the Roman Empire. This is part of the, the national policy, the foreign policy of relating to this nation so that, that they don't get out of control. And so you go about your work of um, watching over these people. And, and you might as well take some time and, and have a little fun while you're at it. And so you take the clothes that, uh, that you'd stripped off the men before you, you whipped them, and, uh, and you, you start playing a game of dice to see who's going to get which piece of clothing. A couple of hours into the crucifixion, one of Pilate's guards brings a sign to put on the, uh, the cross that Jesus is on. And so you climb up a ladder and you nail this sign that says... This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And as you nail the sign to the cross, Jesus, with labor, looks up into your eyes. And you see a, a nobility in his eyes. The sign says it, and the soldiers there, before they uh, whipped him, said it. This is the King of the Jews. And you start to think, maybe, maybe this is a king. There's something different about this man. The Jewish priests and religious leaders are present, mocking Jesus. If, you the, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, Luke 23, 37. Onlookers also shout out, yeah, save yourselves. Let, them save, let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. A couple of the soldiers hear the jeering of the crowd, and they taunt him too, and they join in. And one of the other criminals joins the chorus of mockers. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. You hear all of this, and then you hear Jesus respond to the second criminal who denounces the jeers. He says, don't you fear God, even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man doesn't, hasn't done anything wrong. 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's something strange and wonderful about this man who, who prays for forgiveness for the ones who are torturing him and offers paradise to a criminal. The sky grows unusually dark for several hours And you wonder if it's going to rain, but it never really does. And then the ground shakes, and it's as though, from your perspective, the epicenter is right there at the cross. The whole whole city is shaking with this earthquake. And and you look at all the things that are happening, and nature seems to be crying out as though this was their creator God that was dying. And so you say, this man truly was the Son of God. You hear Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he stops breathing. You leave Jesus' body on the cross. The others still still are alive, and so you wait. And then orders come up the hill that the Jews have requested that the bodies be taken down before sunset because of the Sabbath day. And so the orders are to break the legs of each of the, the, the prisoners. And so uh, your soldiers, friends, and your contrabarium, they, they go to one soldier and then the other and breaking legs, and your responsibility is Jesus. But as you get to Jesus, you see that he's dead, and, and the leader of your, of your group, he comes up with a spear and pokes him in the side. And you know that Jesus is dead, so you don't break his legs. Joseph Um, A guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent Jew, he's there with some of Jesus' followers, and they have gotten permission to take Jesus' body and put it in a tomb. And so they use your ladder, and they go up, and gently, lovingly, they take him off the cross. They put him on uh, a gurney of some kind. They wrap him in grave clothes, and they, they take him off, and you watch. You can't dwell on on this scene too much because you've got, you've got to take the bodies of the other two prisoners off and you've got to deal with them. But there's something in the back of your mind that keeps saying, this man was different. In the great work on Christ's life called The Desire of Ages, Ellen White says this about Jesus' heart as he was being roughly nailed to the cross. The Savior made no murmur of complaint. His face remained calm and serene, but great drops of sweat stood upon his brow. There was no pitying hand to wipe the death dew from his face, no words of sympathy and unchanging fidelity to stay his human heart. While the soldiers were doing their fearful work, Jesus prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. His mind passed from his own sufferings to the sin of his persecutors and the terrible retribution that would be theirs. No curses were called down upon the soldiers who were handling him so roughly. No vengeance was invoked upon the priests and rulers who were gloating over the accomplishments of their purpose. Christ pitied them in their ignorance and their guilt. He breathed only a plea for their forgiveness, for they know not what they do. What does it take for you and me to murmur and complain? You got to admit, we are a bunch of grumblers and complainers in this room. And if, you're, if, you, if you don't admit it, then, then you're denying the reality of your life. We complain about so many different things. And when you think about it, um, a complaint is an accusation. Uh, for example, uh, we complain about uh, our food when it's cold. It comes out of the, 
of the uh, kitchen cold, and we're like, hey, there's something wrong with my food. And we're blaming the, the cook, we're blaming the server for taking too long, whatever it is, our food's cold, it's your fault. Um, we complain when the music is too fast or too slow at church. That piano, she plays like a, a snail. <laughs> we have all kinds of opinions about things, and we're ready to, to complain and to blame. Do you complain when you have an extra long work day? If only I had more responsibility. My boss doesn't treat me well enough. He doesn't know the things that I've got to do in my life. I need, I need more control of my schedule, we say, and we complain. Put the blame on somebody else. What about when that customer service person just doesn't get you what you want when you call in and have a complaint about your account? You ever been there where the customer service person is doing everything they can, but the system is stacked against them and their hands are tied and you are just frustrated with the system? Every time I call CenturyLink, that's how I feel. <laughs> and and I, I, I tell them, it's not your fault, but I really wish your company would change its policies. Um, have you ever gotten frustrated with a customer service representative? Blaming them for all your problems. Kids, do you ever complain when your parents ask you to do something that you just don't want to do? Ah, why doesn't, why doesn't my sister have to do that? <laughs> right? We complain. Every complaint is an accusation. Every murmur is a judgment on someone. And Jesus, he didn't do that. He had every opportunity. He was not in a place that he had put himself. He was, he was there because of the priests. He could have blamed the priests. He could have complained and murmured about them. He wasn't in charge of, of the, the nailing thing. That wasn't his choice. The soldiers were nailing him to the cross. He could have complained about the pain he was experiencing. And he would have been righteous in doing so. And yet he didn't. In fact, he, wasn't, he was bearing the burden of our sin and our guilt, and he did it all willingly. He took it on himself. He owned it. The pain, the fact that he was on the cross, the burden of our sin that he was bearing, he owned it as if it was his responsibility and his alone. And he didn't blame anybody else. He simply said, Father, forgive them. Romans 5.8 says, but God proves his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took all the accusation, all the condemnation, all the guilt that was due us as sinners, even the soldiers who nailed him to the cross, without retaliation, without complaint, and he owned that guilt as if it was his own. Let's just let this reality sink in. You, you're that soldier who nailed Jesus to the cross. You're the soldier who gave him poison to drink. You're the soldier who roughly dropped that, that, that post into the ground and shook Jesus' body violently as he hung on three nails. And yet Jesus looks at you with pitying tender, and he, tender love, and he says, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Amen. When we see Jesus' character and we see his love for us, it should change our hearts. It should melt us and make us recognize that we are broken, that we are guilty, and that he has he's taken our guilt on himself. Amen. It should transform us too. When we talk to that customer service representative, we have to recognize that Jesus died uncomplaining, and we, we get the opportunity to say, I forgive you. 
You don't know what you're doing. You don't have the power over this. I forgive you. When we face our boss who doesn't treat us like we want to, we have the opportunity of saying, I forgive you. When others treat us badly and abuse us, we can say, Jesus suffered more than I did. I forgive you. Do you have any any grudges that are weighing down on your shoulders? Anything that you've held against someone? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. And, And without murmuring or complaint, Jesus forgave his abusers. Surely you have not been abused as badly as Christ. And surely you can pray that same prayer. Father, forgive them. I hope that we'll leave this worship service today with a better understanding of Christ's sacrifice and his humility and that we will leave humbled by our own guilt and our own responsibility and that we will leave with a heart a little more tender and a little more willing to be patient and kind when somebody does something to harm us. I hope that you will see those who've done you wrong and you'll say, I forgive you and that you'll pray that God will forgive them too. Let's stand for our closing hymn.